Father in heaven, we ask that you'd humble us this morning as we come to hear your word. We pray you'd increase our hunger and our appetite for your word. We ask you'd work by the power of your Holy Spirit to shape us and to change us, to point our eyes to Christ, that we would find rest in him this morning. All right, thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word. I pray you'd use me as your servant to, to faithfully preach your word, to say what is true, and to point our attention to Jesus this morning. We ask you to find much glory in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how should Christians view the Old Testament? There's a lot in the Old Testament that can be difficult to understand. We deal with a lot of history there that's extremely foreign to us, maybe difficult to understand culture there that is foreign to us. I mean, there's commands there that you may wonder, even as a Christian sometimes, what do I do with these commands? I mean, we live in North Carolina, an hour north of here is the capital of barbecue in the world, right? I know if you're from Texas, you think it's a different place, but Lexington, North Carolina, a wonderful place to go get pork barbecue. Uh, Go three hours to the east, you can get fresh shrimp right off the coast of North Carolina. What do we do with those commands? And sometimes maybe Christians look at those commands and say, well, because we're free to eat pork and we're free to eat shrimp, what about the rest of those commands? Are they relevant to our lives? What do we do with the Old Testament? Even one well-known evangelical pastor And the Atlanta area suggested a number of years ago to his church that they unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, suggesting that the Old Testament just got in the way of proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming Christ. And that's not good advice. It's bad advice. I would consider uh, not to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Sixty-six books in the Bible 39 of them in the Old Testament, meaning you'd unhitch yourself from a majority of Scripture. Consider also what unfolds in the pages of the Old Testament. If you happen to ignore or disregard or skip over the majority of God's Word found in the Old Testament, consider that you'd lose sight of the glory of the gospel found in Jesus Christ. You know, a simple way to think about the Old Testament is God's promises that are made. God makes promises all throughout the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve had sinned against God, rightly judged for their sin and banished from the garden, no longer living in the presence of God as His people in a perfect world, they were not without hope. For God promised in Genesis 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 15, to send one who would crush the head of the serpent, one that would redeem and save and buy back what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So all the way back in Genesis, we have promises that God makes, and they're unfolding throughout the pages of the Old Testament until you get to the New Testament, where God keeps His promises in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. All 66 books unfolding God's plan for redemption and salvation found only in His Son, Jesus. So what should Christians do with the Old Testament? We should marvel at the glory of God revealed in the truth of all of Scripture, in the truth of the Old Testament, as we see God's story of salvation unfolding throughout the pages of the Bible. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul helps the churches there in the region of Galatia see how God's promises are unchanging. His promises don't change from Genesis 3.15 on. From old covenant to new, from Abraham to Moses to Jesus, to the application of the gospel to your very life through faith in Jesus, God's promises never change. His salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in His Son, Jesus Christ, alone. And this morning we turn our attention, as we continue on our study, we, continue, we turn our attention to Galatians chapter 3 and verses 15 through 29. Go ahead and take your copy of the Bible and open it up. If you need a Bible, you can take the one right in front of you in the pew rack, and you can turn to page 973 in the pew Bible, page 973. 
We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29 this morning. What we do here, if you're new to our church and you're one of our guests, we're so glad you're here with us. It's easy to jump in this morning. We're just going to be looking at this passage of Scripture, Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29, and considering what God has to say in His Word. Let me read through all of this passage as we begin our time together, starting there in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Well, the main idea that captures all this passage, the main idea I want to unpack in this sermon is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this main idea down. God's promises never change, and neither does the way of salvation. God's promises never change, and neither does the way of salvation. We've been studying through Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, which in modern day would be kind of south-central Turkey. And we've noticed the concerning tone that he has in this letter. He's concerned. He doesn't start off with encouragement in chapter 1. He goes to his deep concern, and he's rightly concerned because these young churches that he's writing to were being led astray by false teaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul planted these churches, and not long after he left these churches, false teachers that we'll refer to as the Judaizers, they crept in and became teaching a gospel that was different from what the Apostle Paul preached to them. And Paul has warned them, actually, this is a different gospel and there is no other gospel. They were wrongly teaching these Gentile Christians that if they truly wanted to be counted as people of God, then they needed to be circumcised and adhere to the law of Moses. So they were teaching Jesus plus your obedience to the law of Moses, well, that will produce your salvation. They were preaching a false gospel. And in chapter 3, we looked last week to see Paul making the argument that they did not need to be circumcised in order to be counted as one of God's people. They didn't need Abraham's sign of circumcision. They needed Abraham's faith. And they'd already professed faith in Jesus Christ. God's righteousness has always been counted by faith in God's promises. And His promises have been fulfilled fully in Jesus Christ, His Son. Well, this morning as we continue on in Galatians 3, we see Paul tracing through the story of the Old Testament. God's promises to Abraham to Moses and the law, 
to Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. And then he speaks to the freedom that Christ gives to all who trust in Jesus. And as we make our way through this passage this morning, we're going to trace God's unchanging promises with three movements that I want us to to turn our attention to, three movements Paul makes from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to Jesus, and from slaves to sons when you put your faith in Jesus. The first movement is there in verses 15 through 18, from Abraham to Moses, verses 15 through 18, from Abraham to Moses. Now, in the previous verses in chapter 3, Paul had pointed to Abraham to show that justification before God has always come by faith alone. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, these false teachers there in the region of Galatia, the Judaizers, uh, they likely recognized the importance of Abraham, but they probably passed right over him to move on to Moses and to the law given to Israel, God giving Moses the law at Mount Sinai. And their teaching wrongly ended up suggesting that the law somehow improved on God's covenant to Abraham or even replaced God's covenant to Abraham. So Paul addresses there in verses 15 through 18 uh, to show that, that God's promises are unchanging. The Old Testament law was temporary It was preparatory. It pointed forward to what God would do in Jesus. And so Paul gives some brief brief teaching on God's covenant with Abraham and on God's covenant with Moses. Let's define our terms here. What is a covenant? Uh, Most simply, a covenant is a formal arrangement between two or more parties. In the most broad sense, that's what it is. Now, we're probably more familiar in our modern society with contracts than we are with covenants. Now, covenants are a bit different. Covenants have to do with relationships, a formal arrangement between relationships. Tom Schreiner uses this brief definition. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. One example of a covenant that we're likely familiar with is marriage. One man, one woman, making binding promises to one another, sealed with a vow appealing to God. Now, covenants are very important in the Bible. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, it unfolds through these biblical covenants. They trace God's saving work throughout history. And in this section, Paul shows the unity of covenants, but also the distinction of the covenants, particularly that God made with Abraham and with Moses. So let's pick up looking at verse 15. And Paul gives an example of of covenants made between people. So when human beings make a covenant, those covenants are not to be broken. He makes the point that no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So what's agreed to is set once that covenant has been made. If that's the case with man-made covenants, his logic is, then how much more is it the case when God himself makes a covenant? What's set is done once it's been made. In verse 16, he points to God's covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, which we looked at a number of a couple years ago. Genesis 12 was a covenant of grace. God himself promising what he would do in giving Abraham land and giving Abraham descendants. It was a covenant of, of promise, not one of human effort, but promise of God's grace. And the Apostle Paul, he points to an important detail that God's promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, in the singular, offspring. Now, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, is is one of several places where we read of the promise to Abraham's offspring, in the singular. There in Genesis 12, verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. Not not offsprings in the plural, rather referring to one. Well, who is this offspring? 
Well, Paul tells us there. He answers that at the end of verse 16. Who is Christ? Jesus is the offspring, the descendant of Abraham, the only one in whom all nations would be blessed. In other words, God's covenant promises to Abraham looked forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who inherits all of the blessing, the one who makes that blessing available to all nations if they would turn to Jesus and put their faith in him. The point here, God's promises were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Now, God's promises came a long time before the Old Testament law came through Moses. In verse 17, Paul points to the law coming 430 years afterward. Now, he's likely counting there from the time of Jacob when the covenant to Abraham was reaffirmed. And he makes it clear here, though, that the law does not set the promise aside. He says the law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. In other words, God's covenant with Moses did not nullify what God promised through Abraham. It didn't add anything to justification by faith alone. It's really important that you understand law and promise. And that's why the Apostle Paul is instructing the Galatians on that here. He's saying here that Abraham clearly believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, meaning justification by faith alone is the way God has always saved. When the law was given through Moses, that did not change the way that God saved people. It's not like all of a sudden justification was now by believing God plus your own good works. He's saying the law had a different purpose. Don't get taken off track is what he's telling the Galatians. The way that you were saved by faith alone is the way that you continue on in the Christian life. Paul's logic in verse 18 is that promise and law are mutually exclusive. Either God's blessing comes by grace and promise or it comes by works of the law. If you were to receive God's blessing, the inheritance by your own works, that would not be a gift. When you work at your job during the week and you get your paycheck, you don't go up. I mean, you can be thankful for your job and thankful for your employer. It's a good thing. But you don't go up and say, thank you so much for this gift. Thank you so much for this gift for the 50 hours I worked this week. That's what you deserve. If you don't see your check hits your bank account on payday, you probably go immediately to HR and ask, what's the problem? I earned this money and it's not in my account. That's a wage. Salvation is different. It's a gift. You don't earn it. No one can take credit for their salvation, for forgiveness of sins. No one can claim to be righteous. If you were to receive God's inheritance by your own works, it would not be a gift. Now, the inheritance, it can't come by law-keeping because there's a problem. You and I are law-breakers. And James reasons in chapter 2 of of James that if you are guilty of breaking one part of the law, well, then you're guilty of breaking all of it. God's blessing of salvation is a promise fulfilled by God's grace through faith. We can't be made right with God by our own obedience. We can only be made right by God, by His grace, through faith in His promise. So the covenant is based on promise, and therefore it cannot come through law. God's promises to Abraham have been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, All the rest of Abraham's descendants failed, dishonored God, broke his law. Jesus, descendant of Abraham, perfectly obeyed the law of God, perfectly loved God and perfectly loved neighbor. And then he laid down his life and died on the cross to pay for lawbreakers, to pay for the sin that you and I have committed. He rose from the dead on the third day that we might be saved if we put our faith in him. The significance of all of this is that the law being given to Moses did not change the way of salvation. Salvation has always been by God's promise. Abraham, justified by faith, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Therefore, justification by faith alone is a permanent reality. The law did not change this. Time has not changed this. The law did not add to justification. In fact, moving backwards to keeping the Mosaic law as a means to gain acceptance from God is moving away from Jesus, moving away from blessing. Christian, the good news for us here is this. God deals with His people based on His promises. That's how our religion is different from any other world religion. God deals with us, with people in general, based on His promises found in Jesus Christ. And what that means, Christian, at the moment of your conversion, when you were saved, when by the Spirit of God you were led to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, that moment forward, your salvation has rested on God's unchanging promises in Jesus Christ. Think about this. We said this last week. You do the law. It's important to understand the distinction, law and promise. You do the law, but you can't do the promise. You don't do the gospel. You do the law. You obey. You keep commands or you break them. But when it comes to promise, when it comes to the gospel, you don't do promise. You believe God's promise. You trust in God's promise. And therefore, we are a people of faith, a people of promise, a people who put our faith in Jesus Christ. And the good news is this, we can rest. We can rest from trusting in our own good efforts, rest in wrongly trusting in our own ability to keep the law, or rest when we see that the law condemns us and we're rightly battered and bruised from our law-breaking. We find rest in Jesus Christ. He kept God's law perfectly. We're with Him through faith. We put our trust in Him. By God's grace, we're united to Him, and He alone can give us rest. The second movement I want you to see in verses 19 through 25, from Moses to Christ. The second movement that traces God's unchanging promises from Moses to Christ. Again, promise and law, really important to understand. The law has an important place in the Scriptures. It has an important place in God's history of salvation. The law came from God, and therefore it's good. So don't get it twisted. Don't don't think somehow the law is a terrible thing. Consider that Paul says nothing negative about the law in this section. If there was something he condemned, this would have been a place in the Bible to make it clear. But what he does in this section is he clarifies the role of the law. What Paul is referring to in this section uh, is the Old Testament law of, of Moses. Now, law in its broadest sense, law just means commands. We see God's law in that sense in the Old Testament and the New. We see God's law given before sin in the Garden of Eden. God gave law to Adam and Eve. Do not eat from this tree. That's a law. Be fruitful. Multiply and fill the earth. Command. God's law existed there before sin because God's law revealed who He is. He's holy and He's good and He's right. You know, when we think more broadly about Old Testament law, you can look to Deuteronomy chapter 6, two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And then what do the Ten Commandments do? They elaborate on those two commandments. The Ten Commandments teach us how to love God, how to love our neighbor. The first four commandments in the Ten Commandments about loving God vertically. Verses five, uh, Commandments 5 through 10. The second table of the Ten Commandments teach about horizontal love, how to love your neighbor as yourself. These Ten Commandments, they're expanded about 630 commandments of the law of Moses that we found throughout the pages of the Old Testament. So what do we do with all this? How do we think about law? Well, we're going to handle a little bit of that this morning, and Paul continues to go on throughout the book of Galatians, even in chapter 5, to talk about how Christians who are filled with the Spirit should think about the law. But this morning, what we see is Paul clarifying the role of the Mosaic law in salvation. So you might reason, if if the law did not add to salvation, if it didn't replace God's promise to Abraham, then what is the purpose of the law? 
Well, look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Until. We see here the law was temporary. Until the offspring, Jesus. Until Jesus came. And as it was given, it had a specific aim. Paul says the law was given because of transgressions. Now stick with me here. There's a lot of material here. But we give ourselves to difficult things at work. You figure difficult things out at work. College students, you're taking some difficult subject matter. So are middle schoolers. When I help on my elementary students, sometimes I get stumped even with elementary math. Right? We've all tackled difficult things. So let's not treat theology like, ah, oh, it's really just for the people who want to go to seminary or really care about scholastic work. But no, we're, we're God's people. This is God's word. And we want to give ourselves to hard work to understand what God has said in his word. So let's do a little bit of work here. Paul says the law was given because of transgressions. The literal translation of this in the Greek, it translates like this, to increase transgressions. Meaning the law came in to produce transgression. Now that may sound confused, to produce transgression. That sounds counterproductive. Let's consider the difference between sin and transgression. One scholar that I read this week, he's actually one of our resident scholars, Chris Salamanides. Chris is a resident here, and Chris wrote a paper on this particular passage in seminary, and he shared that with me this week, and there was some really good stuff in that paper. So I quote our resident scholar here. Here's what Chris had to say. Without the law, you have sin, but no transgression. With the law, you have sin that has become transgression, which is a greater violation. The law is being used to see ever so clearly what has already existed in man and expose it by escalating sin from unknown to known. Sin already existed. The law comes. You break the law. That's a transgression. It exposes what is already there. Think about it like this. Increasing transgression means the law defines sin and exposed sin for what it is, a violation of God's holy standards. So consider the fifth command. Honor your father and mother. Before that was given, kids still knew and parents still knew it was wrong to disobey them. Right? So, so the law just defined that and, and made it clear. That law condemns you for your disobedient actions and, and attitudes. Well, kids, don't answer out loud. But how often did you break that command this week? Through your actions or through your attitudes? Maybe even this morning. You're a kid. You're a sinner. That's going to happen. That law is given there to let you know that's not okay. It's a big deal. God has something to say about it. He said something about it. Jesus died for sin, so that must be a big deal. It's there to rightly kind of provoke you to understand the importance of that sin. What about the 10th commandment? Do not covet. Who walked through these doors this morning? Who among us showed up this morning and does not stand condemned for a heart that covets what God has given to someone else? If we're honest, you may have even done that in our meeting here. We're just quick to covet what's around us. Covet as we look at Instagram photos of someone's awesome weekend and we were pretty bored. And all of a sudden, we're coveting the life that someone else has. The law condemns us. The, the coveting is a big deal. It's not submitting to God. It's not submitting and looking to what He's provided for you. It's looking to things that aren't as important like material things and overlooking what God has provided in His Son, Jesus, which is everything that we need. You see, the law reveals God's holy character, His standards, His will, and its main purpose was to show us our sin. Furthermore, we read at the end of verses 19 and 20 that the covenant with Abraham, it was superior to the covenant with Moses. The Judaizers, those false teachers, likely viewed the Mosaic covenant as superior. And Paul points out that the law was put in place through angels on Mount Sinai by an intermediary, who would have been Moses, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Contrast that with the promise 
being given directly to Abraham by the one God. Paul's displaying that the promise is superior to the law. Again, Paul does not say anything negative about the law. He, he clarifies what the role of the law actually is. Does the law oppose God's promises or stand against them? No. Look at verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. I think the best way I've heard to consider this is that the law does not contradict God's promises. It complements God's promises. I've heard it play this. God's law does not oppose His promises. Rather, law and promise are, are teammates complementing one another. And when you stay in your position and play your position, those teammates work really well together. In other words, the law has its limits, for God never intended the law to save you. He never intended for the law to declare you righteous. Think of it like this. The law diagnoses, but it does not cure. The law can show you your sickness, and it should show you your sickness and sin, but the law does not have the power to heal you and to make you righteous. Another way to consider this is the law is like a mirror. You may look into the mirror and it reveals something you don't want to see. Maybe you look into the mirror and it reveals a, a blemish. The mirror shows you the blemish, but it has no ability to do anything about that blemish. It doesn't have the capability to do that. It's not what it does. It's a mirror. The law is like a mirror, there to reveal our sin, but not capable of removing it. The law condemns you as a sinner. It's not provided salvation to anyone by keeping it. Rather, it shows you your need for salvation. It shows you that you fall short of God's holy standards. Before the law, you and I are condemned and rightly judged by God as lawbreakers, breaking His commandments and therefore rejecting His loving authority over us. You see, the law was not given to be a means to earn your forgiveness, but rather the law shows you your need to be forgiven. The law condemns you and reveals just how much you and I are in need of a Savior. God's law has never provided justification. That has always come by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and that's how it will always be. Now, Paul points out the law has always had this function of, of trapping us, if you will. The law was not intended to set you free, but to imprison you. Look at verse 22. We see how the law has functioned like this throughout history. He shifts to the term Scripture there, likely to highlight that the law is God's Word and His will, just like the rest of Scripture. It says, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. No one can escape the condemnation of the law. It imprisons you in that way. It confines you. There's no way to escape the, the righteous demands of the law by your own works. Rather, the law was pointing people forward, pointing people backward to look at God's promise to Abraham and pointing people forward to the promise that was to come through the offspring of Abraham, to the coming of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, where righteousness would be given to those who believe in Jesus. You see, through the Spirit of God, the law reveals to people the weight of your sin against God, that your sin is against Him and Him alone. The law, the law reveals the power of your sin. Like prison, you can't escape it. You're confined. You can't do enough good law-keeping to make up for your law-breaking. The law reveals our sickness. You and I commit sins because we're sinners. We're born into this condition of sin, and therefore we commit sins. We have no hope in ourselves, no hope in our own effort. And therefore, the law was intended to point you somewhere else, to drive you to Christ, that you would see that you are hopeless apart from His salvation and His rescue from prison. 
God's righteousness and His holiness revealed in His law, it shows you your sin, it shows you your sickness, and it shows you you are in need of a Savior who can rescue you from the slavery and imprisonment of sin. It was always the plan for the law to be a sort of interim. It was temporary and it was preparatory. That's the point that Paul finally drives home with a few illustrations in verses 23 through 25. Look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. There's a first illustration there of a prison guard holding you captive. The law was not intended in itself to bring you life. Rather, it held you captive, imprisoned under sin. Again, it was intended to point you to life, to point you to God's promise revealed in the coming of Christ. Christ, the only one who can set you free from the sin that imprisons you, that confines you, and only by faith receiving freedom. Faith in Jesus being the key that unlocks the prison cell and sets you free from sin and slavery and death. In verses 24 and 25, a second illustration given using the metaphor of a guardian to show that the law was serving a a temporary and specific purpose until the time arrived when Jesus came. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Think of a guardian like a, a, a tutor or a chaperone taking care of a child in a particular stage in that child's life, not for the rest of their life, but while they're a child, until the time comes that they've matured and they gain freedom and become an adult. Now, just as guardians and tutors play a temporary role, right? You don't have a babysitter the rest of your life. That was one period of your life that you had a babysitter. You grow up and you get to the place where you can take care of yourself and feed yourself and be trusted to be alone in the house by yourself. Well, the law played a temporary role just like that. It functioned like a babysitter until Christ came. In other words, the the, the law was just preparing you for the promise when Jesus came. And the result for Christians in verse 25, for all who put their faith in Jesus, you are no longer under this guardian. You're free. Look at verse 25, but now that faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian. Elsewhere, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's saying, don't go back to the guardian. (laughs) The guardian was always there to prepare you for your Savior. You know, my my oldest daughter, she turned 18 yesterday. Uh, I looked at my wife a few months ago. We were sipping coffee on a Saturday morning. I said, you realize in a couple months, we're going to be parenting an adult. Like, how did we get here? So what is that going to look like, parenting an adult in our home? She's still in our home. She's still in her senior year of high school, but she's legally now an adult. And imagine if we gave her a gift yesterday and said, hey, happy birthday, Charlotte. Happy 18th birthday. You're an adult now. And uh, we got some new rules. Uh, We're going to go back to having a babysitter. Uh, we need you to give us the keys to your car. Uh, we're going to go to drive you now. Just call us. We need to be picked up from cheer practice or school. Uh, we're we're going to choose what you wear to school each day. We're going to kind of act like you're five again. We're going to get things ready. Happy birthday. That'd make no sense. Like, she's just matured. She's just gone on to the place where she's ready for adult responsibilities. Who would want that kind of news? You're going to go back to that way of living. The Apostle Paul says that's what you're doing as as Christians there, Galatians, when you've received salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and you're being wrongly led astray to go back to this guardian that was meant to prepare you the whole time for this freedom that's found in Jesus Christ. You see, God's law was successful. It accomplished its intended purpose. It pointed to promise. The promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. Christ has come. He laid down his life and he died on the cross. He rose from the dead on the third day. He sent his promised Holy Spirit to dwell in all people who would believe in Jesus. He ushered in a different and new time period. It's been successful. Today we live in a new era, in the new covenant, in the era of of Christ, in the shadow of the cross 
and the empty tomb. Underneath the reign of a risen and ascending Savior, one day returning, the law accomplished what it was intended to accomplish. It shows you the bad news to point you to the good news. The bad news, you've broken the law. You can't stop breaking it. The good news, Jesus fulfilled the law. He perfectly obeyed God. The good news, he paid the penalty for lawbreakers like you and me as a substitute, laying down his life to die on the cross to pay for sin. The good news, all those who put their faith in Jesus are forgiven of all of their sins and transgressions. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and gives new life and righteousness and forgiveness to anyone who would repent and put their faith in him. Good news, you get credit for doing the law even though you failed through the righteousness of Jesus Christ being counted as yours. You earned the 0.0 GPA. He earned the 4.0. And when you put your faith in him, his transcript gets counted as yours. Who wouldn't want to serve a God like that? There's no other God like this. There is no other message like this. It's only found in Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is no room for boasting. There is only room for rejoicing and resting in what Christ has done. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, listen to this good news. I want to ask you, if you're here, this, we're so glad you're here. If you're not a Christian, you are welcome to be here every Sunday morning. But I want to ask you this, and I want you to consider this. How are your sins being forgiven? How are your sins? Surely you don't claim to be a perfect person. But don't rest in that. Well, none of us are perfect. I won't save you. How are you having your sins forgiven? Look to Jesus. He is the way, the only way to forgiveness of sins and salvation. Listen to what we've sung about and listen preached. We sing about the cross and the empty tomb every Sunday morning. Look to Christ and find salvation in Him. Don't, don't leave this morning without talking to someone who invited you, whether that's a, a family member that you're with or a classmate or a friend, or come to any door afterwards, talk to any of our pastors. We'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to have your sins forgiven today by turning and trusting in Jesus. Now, Christian, we'll, we'll look more in the coming weeks about the law and the place that it has in the life of a believer. In Galatians chapter 5, we look at just the life and the Spirit. You know, we certainly can look at things like the Ten Commandments and recognize nine of those Ten Commandments have been repeated in the New Testament. Right? The Sabbath is the one that's not re repeated as a command. It's referenced there. Some of the Mosaic Covenant, like the nine of those Ten Commandments, expected of believers today, but circumcision and food laws and tithing and Sabbath laws are no longer binding in the life of the believer. In the coming weeks, we'll see that the law of Moses, while it's been fulfilled in Jesus and replaced by the law of Christ, life in the Spirit. Those many Old Testament laws elaborated on ways to love God and to love your neighbor, and through life in the Spirit, it's possible. And that's how we're to live, through the Spirit of God, loving Him and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Through the Spirit, we fulfill what the law intended. We live like Christ, for His Spirit lives in us, enabling us to love God and to love others. Stay tuned for more in the coming weeks. The third movement, final movement, traces God's unchanging promises, verses 26 through 29, from slaves to sons. This third movement traces what happens in your life when you put your faith in Jesus, a movement from slaves to sons. These last three verses speak to the privilege given to those who've repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. There's nothing that needs to be added to faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, you are no longer slaves to sin, slaves to the law, but sons of God. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This marks a transformation from slaves to sons that only happens through faith in Jesus. And therefore, all who are in Christ have been graciously given full rights and privileges as sons of God. That movement only happens in your life if you've become a Christian, meaning if you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus to be forgiven. 
Verse 26 says all believers are sons of God. There's significance there in sons. In the time Paul was writing, sons were heirs of an inheritance. Heirs to the inheritance of their father. By saying that your sons, he makes the point that all who are in Christ Jesus through faith in him, without distinction, they are heirs to God's inheritance. In other words, Christian, your identity is now found in, in Jesus. We read in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To be baptized means to be immersed, submerged. Here speaking to the spiritual reality of being united to Christ, the reality that water baptism points to. Those who've been spiritually baptized into Christ are then immersed and baptized in, in water professing they've been buried with Jesus in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life in the Spirit. A side note here, I read a commentary this week that remarked that if baptism were the replacement of circumcision, it seems like Paul would make that very clear here. For that would have immediately cleared up any wrong notion that Gentile believers needed to be circumcised. But I digress. All who are in Christ are one, and are heirs. That's the main point here, the main thrust. Not only Jews are heirs, but also Greeks and Gentiles, those outside of the nation of Israel. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Christ has brought salvation to the nations. The nations inherit the blessing of God promised to Abraham through faith in Jesus. There is neither slave nor free. Slaves who in that society owned nothing and therefore had no right to inheritance have been made heirs right along with the free. There is no male or female. This is important. If male and female are both heirs in Christ, why does Paul not say back in 26, you're all children of God? Why does he say you're all sons of God if this includes male or female? I've got two daughters and two sons. I don't call them my sons. I call them my children, my sons and my daughters. So, so why does Paul choose to use here sons of God rather than children? Well, again, in most ancient cultures, sons were the heirs, heirs to the inheritance of the father. That legal status back in those ancient times was often not given to daughters. Look at the beauty here. By saying that both male and female are sons, Paul is highlighting we are all heirs to God's inheritance in Christ. Those who in society that were not counted as heirs to an inheritance, they too are now sons of God through Jesus, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. The point being you're all sons of God, summed up there at the end in verse 28, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Church, you are one in Christ. You've been given a unity. You didn't build it. It wasn't the idea of American evangelicals. Church membership doesn't make that happen. It recognizes what's been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. The dividing wall of hostility being torn down. Unity been given through the blood of Jesus Christ and the Spirit given to all who would trust in Him. All ethnicities, all social classes, men and women made one. We are not all identical, but we're all one. Look around. We're not all identical, but we're all one. It's a spiritual reality given to all those who trust in Jesus. Unity in Christ is what is highlighted here. When you become a Christian, this is important, you still remain a man or a woman. So Paul is not denying any distinction here of any of these classes. Elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 5, he teaches the importance of distinctions of roles in marriage with men and women, husband and wife. In 1 Timothy, distinction of the church for men and women, particularly as it relates to the office of pastors. That's not undoing that. Anyone who wrongly tells you that, that's, that's going off track and implying something. Paul is very explicitly taught about in other letters. What he's saying here is when you become a Christian, you still are who you are. You're a man or a woman. You still have, uh, you still, who are you are eth ethnically. When I became a Christian, I'm still a white guy. That's who I am. That's who God made me to be. But that's not the most important thing about me. You see, the picture here, Christian, you must realize the most important thing about you as a Christian is not your gender, not your ethnicity, not your social status, 
not your education level, any of those things. The most important thing about you is who you are in Christ and your union to Jesus. And Christian, that helps you know that you have more in common with a Christian in this room who is from a different ethnicity than you do someone who shares your ethnicity but does not share your faith in Jesus. You have more in common, 18-year-old college student, with an 88-year-old believer in this room than you do with an 18-year-old on campus who likes the same things you like and the room is decorated the same way you're decorated and they use the same slang that you use, but they do not share your faith in Christ. Therefore, we're one family, one spirit given to us in Jesus Christ, a new family identity You belong to Jesus if you put your faith in him. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. No distinction, all full heirs. This promise being given to us and also therefore instructing us, this promise is for everyone. Let's proclaim it to all people. And let's be reminded this morning, Oakhurst Baptist Church, God's promises never change. Lots of things change. You change over time. In the eight years I've been here, I've changed. I don't have to wear reading glasses to study my text. I didn't have to do that eight years ago. Things change very quickly in life, but God never changes. God's promises never change, and neither does the way of salvation. Hallelujah good news for us today because God has given us what he demands in his law through the gospel. Therefore, we can rejoice that we are forgiven in Christ, free to pursue a life of love, free to obey God from a posture of joy and gratitude. And while the law continues to expose our guilt The gospel clothes us in grace found in Jesus. And God's grace is sufficient to save us and to keep us to the end. We can rejoice in Christ. We can rest in Christ. He alone has fulfilled the law for us. He alone bore its curse in our place. And he rose from the dead that we might be declared righteous in his sight. Christian, live a life of enjoying and rejoicing in and resting in all that God is for you in Christ Jesus. Let's do that now. Father, you alone have brought us rest in your son Jesus. We thank you so much as a church as we remember your amazing grace and your amazing love and your kindness and the power of your Holy Spirit to lead us lawbreakers away from sin to find forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would guard us this morning by the promises found in your gospel, the promise we can cling to, that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. May we find rest in him and in his presence in our lives, joy in knowing him, and comfort as we look to the future in a life lived with you. We ask that you'd strengthen us by your grace as we depart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.